So let's turn, uh, by the before we go to Luke uh, chapter 12, <clears throat> um, I probably shouldn't bring this up since I'm not teaching on it yet, but um, the issues going on with Israel now are, are uh, to me, they are profoundly biblical and, um, and troublesome. There's an anti-Semitism that uh, I don't think this world has seen since the 1930s and 40s and it's now able to be uh, fed with all the technology that makes it more global uh, than it was back in those days but um, very very complicated issue but uh, I hope sometime we can uh, we can talk about it uh, not as we go through Luke unless it comes up in Luke which uh, it does actually in some places uh, but at any rate I just want to uh, to keep us all in prayer for whatever uh, the Lord is doing <clears throat> in terms of his word. And this may be a way that, uh, that he has of getting his word to Israel in a way that it hasn't in a lot of, a lot of centuries. Uh, if you read the end of Romans chapter 11, that's, that's the passage that I, in my opinion, is the most difficult uh, to deal with where Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in, the Jews having partially hardened hearts to allow us in until all the Gentiles are in and then all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? All Israel will be saved. Who is Israel? Uh, that's, that's a question that has, has been pondered and written about uh, in hundreds and hundreds of books for the last 2,000 years. And I don't know that anybody really has everything uh, down pat yet, but uh, at any rate, something is happening and a lot of, uh, of blood appears to be on the verge of being shed and we need to simply keep everybody in prayer, um, as always. Uh, so having said that, let's, let's go back to Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Uh, if you would, Luke chapter 12, <clears throat> for the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with a very small parable that is usually given short shrift because we assume from the surface of it that it's, that it's simple, uh, easy, obvious, and, uh, and we sort of let it go at, at that. But we saw last week, hopefully, uh, that uh, this little parable of the rich fool that's found in verse 13 through 21 is not simply saying, don't be a greedy person. It certainly is saying that, but that is just the beginning of the parable. And what we saw most importantly was Jesus puts this parable to his disciples having pronounced woes on Pharisees and scribes. And he's connecting those two. That's, it's very important to see these as connected now, what he talks about as he begins chapter 12, he's meeting with the Pharisees and scribes, and he's talking to them about hypocrisy. And Luke 18, I read that a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week also, is, is the very uh, well-known, brief, but insightful passage where the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple. The tax collector is so humble that he won't even look up. He's looking down. And he simply prays, uh, save me a sinner. Whereas the Pharisee comes in and says, well, thanks God that you didn't make me like that guy. Uh, I'm perfect. 
So I don't need to even pray for any kind of forgiveness. That is the hypocrisy. It, it is not trying to be something you're not, though it is that. Uh, much, much more deeply, it is trying to, to be satisfied with what you are uh, when you are away from biblical integrity. And that covers a lot of things, including greed. And that's one of the reasons Jesus follows with this parable of the rich fool. Today, we're going to go through verses 22 to 34 and unpack the parable of the rich fool. Uh, there is, uh, of course, the parable of, of um, the different soils is the parable where Jesus begins uh, with his disciples and he teaches them. He says, let me, let me unpack this parable for you. And it goes through uh, component by component. Uh, but he does that as well in less, um, a less clear, perhaps, manner. This is one of those instances. He is continuing to unpack what he's been telling these disciples about don't become satisfied when you shouldn't be satisfied. Don't have an earthly satisfaction behind you. Uh, he pronounced the seven woes to the Pharisees. Uh, he followed again with this parable, the rich fool. Um, greed obviously is a very, very strong tendency, has a has a strong tendency for us to feel satisfied. Uh, how many times, for instance, does, does greed bleed over into um, uh, education, uh, achievement, so that you, we often may be around people who have none of those things and become smug in our thinking that we are better than these people. We've, we've accomplished, look at, look at what we've done. These, these people haven't. And we immediately start ascribing reasons. They're lazy. Uh, they could have gone to school too. They could have done this, they didn't. They, uh, all of that is pharisaical hypocrisy and the Christian is wide open to it and we need to be careful. And that's what Jesus is going to unpack. Only he's going to drop a bomb into all of this today in verses 22 to 34 and really take it into wider uh, reaches. Uh, but uh, a leading indicator, interestingly enough, of pharisaical hypocrisy is going to be worry and anxiety. Uh, these are endemic features of 21st century living, especially 21st century American living. Uh, counselors, uh, emotive people, everything now is based on feeling, emotion, and uh, we're constantly pulling the plant up by the roots to see if it's healthy, which of course prevents it from ever becoming healthy, uh, and running off to somebody who has a shingle out in the front uh, who can purportedly help us with this. Interesting that Jesus is going to go to worry and anxiety as indicators that we're not quite where we need to be. Uh, we'll see that in this passage. Kent Hughes uh, says this, he says, worry is the emotional reward of material preoccupation. Uh, that is certainly the case. Uh, we've gone over that a, a good bit and I'm not gonna dwell on it quite, uh, quite as fully yet. Uh, Paul Tripp, has an interesting quote here. This is going to get us where we need to go. He says, Jesus did not give you his grace to make your kingdom work. 
He gave you his grace to invite you to a better kingdom. That is the essence of what Jesus is getting at in this parable of the rich fool and why he is so upset at these Pharisees. Uh, Paul Tripp, a uh, good friend, has, has uh, written many good books. I recommend every single book you can get your hands on that Paul Tripp has written. I'm going to focus today on this one called A Quest for More. Now, when you hear the title of it, we immediately assume we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the rich fool, a greedy, a greedy person questing for more. What he's really meaning by this title uh, is that there is so much more that God has created you and me for that we should be questing for that, not the things of this earth that we so easily get sidetracked. We'll come back to Tripp's book in a little bit. Uh, so first, we're going to look at uh, verses 22 to 30, where Jesus is going to uh, continue to expound for these disciples the thought that we should not be seeking the kingdom of self things that we want, looking around this world and, and the various ways we can get uh, sidetracked. Uh, we got here again, beginning in verse 19, the, the conclusion of the parable, Jesus has been talking to this man who is already wealthy, who got a lot uh, more wealthy through the hand of God. It wasn't something he did. And in 19, uh, the man says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God says to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we're going to get into verse 22 and uh, read 22 and 23. And he said to his disciples, continuing this, this conversation, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Uh, he's, he's beginning uh, a diatribe here with, with these disciples. And interestingly, do not be anxious uh, is the heading for the whole passage that we're looking at today. All of verses 22 to 34, uh, someone uh, in the ESV here has put, do not be anxious is the heading for the passage. So Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, don't be anxious. Well, why not? How could you not be anxious in the world we're living in? His answer is because you have a very good father with a capital F uh, who knows you better than you know yourself and he knows what you need and he will supply it in his way and in his time. Why? Uh, why should we not be worried about these things? Food, clothing, all of these. And notice that's an imperative. Jesus says, do not be worried about what you will eat, what you will wear. Uh, these are commands coming from Jesus. Well, because again, our bodies and lives are about more than food and clothing. That sends us into verses 24, 5, and 6. Interesting animal is brought up here. Jesus says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, 
Why are you anxious about the rest? Uh, so you see how anxiety is coursing its way through all of this. But Jesus, uh, as, a, uh, as an example, brings up the ravens. Uh, the reason that is, is interesting, I won't turn there now, but Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, uh, you will see uh, as Moses is laying out the Levitical laws for Israel to follow, you have clean and unclean animals. The ravens are pointedly spoken of as unclean animals. So these are not, uh, these are not uh, the animals that you would expect Jesus to bring up as a paradigm here, but he does that. Even the ravens, he says, let's consider them. They are unclean to be sure. They don't sow, they don't reap, they have no storehouses, they have no barns, and yet God feeds them. Uh, interesting passage that I will turn to. Uh, book of Job, I, I love the book of Job. And it's uh, so instructive in, in so many ways. But if you recall the, the general uh, trajectory of of Job, he's, he's just smashed. He was a rich man. Uh, he had barns, he had storehouses, he had a lot of things. And God came into his life and destroyed all of it. Uh, anything that you could, other than taking his life, God allowed Satan to come in and take all of his possessions, his children, everything, his health, <coughs> everything was gone from this man. And Job, Job holds the line. Job, Job's faith is, uh, gets him, even through his grumbling, his faith remains intact. Now, his grumbling goes uh, interestingly through that book for quite a bit, quite a few chapters, and God remains silent. But toward the end of Job, God says, all right, I have heard you out, Job. I have allowed you to speak. Now I want you to sit down, be quiet, and listen to me. And God speaks to him uh, the ending of the book, three or four or five chapters of Job uh, is where God answers him. In fact, the heading of chapter 38 of Job is the Lord answers Job. By the end of it, as you know, uh, Job has been so humbled that he says, I, I, all I can do is clap my hand over my mouth be quiet, be humble, and have faith in this God who has done these things. And of course, God uh, rewards that faith in the case of Job. But uh, the very last verse of chapter 38, as God is, uh, is going to Job and, and saying, who do you think? Who do you think has done all of these things? Look up in the sky, Job. Who do you think created that sun? Who do you think put those stars in the sky? Who do you think did this, that, and the other? all the way through uh, chapter 38 in the very last verse says this, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Uh, it's a given uh, with God that he will supply the ravens and their young, even though they are unclean animals uh, in the context of Israel. So God is, is starting to speak through Jesus to his disciples in the same way that he spoke to Job. He's saying, who do you think is behind everything that you have? Who do you think is, is telling you through Jesus, who's telling you what you are to do and, and what uh, sort of trajectory I want your life to take uh, as you carry the gospel out? 
so when you get to verse 25, uh, being anxious for such things cannot add a single hour to your life. Back to anxiety and worry. Now, um, Phil Riken, in his commentary on Luke, very excellent commentary on Luke, quotes from something <coughs> called the panicanxiety.com website which says that there are three components to anxiety, three components to worry. One of them is physiological, muscle tension, sweating, heart palpitations, blood pressure issues, those kinds of things. A second one is psychological, restlessness, sleeplessness, irritability, fear, lack of concentration. All these are possible impacts from too much worry, too much anxiety. And there's a social component, uh, which tends to make those who are overcome with worry and anxiety seek help from other people and become uh, attached to them, counselors, uh, people like that for reassurance. Uh, The Christian is is going to take this into another direction, as you can, can imagine. The problem we have in our culture today, and my suspicion is this has been present since the Garden of Eden, is we have a lot of ways to, uh, to placate our conscience over anxiety. We've, for instance, I've listed a few of them. Covering the basis. Uh, who can argue with someone who says, I'm just covering the basis? Well, why haven't you slept in four days? Well, I'm just covering all the bases. Of course, that's a great thing to do. Conscientiousness, in other words. Uh, leadership. Uh, what good leader would not uh, burn the midnight oil and, and, and go the extra mile? Uh, there's another one. I had, didn't put in my list. It's a control factor, of course. That's another one. Uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. There's another one. Uh, leaving no stone unturned. There's another one. Being prepared for any eventuality. There's another one. We have all of these ways to, to say, this is why I am so concerned about everything that I've got to do it all myself. I, can't, I won't delegate, I can't delegate because I've got to be certain it's done. All of those are indicators of anxiety and worry in certain uh, aspects of living. And always keep the context in, in place here. Jesus is saying that too is a component of pharisaical, scribal, uh, work ethic. Those were the guys who were at the top of the list. Remember, we've seen they want the front seat in all the synagogues. They want people to acknowledge that they are those who have been leaders and do all of these things. Uh, In point of fact, biblically, anxiety and worry serves as a thief. Uh, It steals our time, our rest, (coughs) our health, our hope, our obedience. It shrivels our souls. That's what Jesus is trying to get to these disciples because he knows what they're going to encounter. Every one of these men, according to tradition, is going to die a death. Uh, Judas, of course, is going to to die at his own hand. But the other 11, according to tradition, will all die a martyr's death, having served Jesus in places that did not want to hear the message. So Jesus knows they're going to legitimately confront uh, issues literally of, of life and death. And he's, he's telling them on the front end of all of this, uh, you've got to get where this, this notion of worrying about everything is going to be met and handled before it gets out of hand. And we'll see in a minute uh, where he's going to take them for a solution. 
verse 26. Therefore, <clears throat> uh, verse 26, uh, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Um, that's going to lead us into uh, a solution. It's the verses 27 to 30. Uh, in verses 24 to 26, he began by saying, consider the ravens. Now he's going to consider the lilies, the grass, uh, the, the flora and fauna of, of this planet on which we live. Uh, I would suggest uh, butterflies, uh, birds, all of these things that are around us all the time. Who None of these creatures, not, they don't, uh, they're not doing the things that humans do and they have very, very short lifespans. And they are beautiful creatures. God has created them uh, that way. And, uh, he takes care of them. And Jesus is saying, keep in mind everything that you're seeing in my creation and how God handles this creation and cares for it. So it begins with, with uh, verse in verse 27, uh, talking of these creatures, he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Uh, these lilies in this case are not working. They're, they're not setting up things, uh, yet they surpass even the great Solomon himself, who is noted for all of the splendor of the things he built and created around him. Therefore, verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? That's going to uh, bring us the key here. If God so clothes the grass, he says, which has a very, very brief time, how much more will he clothe you, Christian, of little faith? That's the key, those three words, of little faith. That's where Jesus is, is going. Faith is going to be the key, the key to this heart issue of anxiety and worry. It's going to be answered by faith. Uh, anxiety is worry. It can be a sin of unbelief, a pharisaical hypocrisy, as we've seen, because it denies God's goodness, his sacrifice, his promises, his sovereignty. It denies everything about God. When we are anxious and so worried that we, we come away from a vertical perspective and start work living horizontally, we're denying that God is existing. We're denying everything we have known from, from the pages of scripture. Uh, and we're saying, we can't trust you, God. I've got to, to handle all of these things. And it's, it's categorically an issue of faith. And that's why the solution goes in verse 28 toward faith. Grow your faith a solid faith, an active faith, a real faith. Uh, several times in Luke, we've already had an opportunity to talk about biblical faith. And I always uh, love using um, the word cat, K-A-T. A uh, little wrinkle in the spelling of it, but that's okay. Uh, biblical faith has three components to it. The K is knowledge. I've got to be aware of something to put my faith in. That's, that's the mission emphasis, the evangelistic outreach emphasis that is found through scripture. Somebody has to take the message of Jesus around the world and tell everybody about it. 
every single human on the planet. Once they have knowledge of it, you get to the A. The, the K is knowledge, the A is assent. I've got to, to take the knowledge that somebody gives me about scripture, which tells me of Jesus, and I've got to turn that over. I've got to examine it. I've got to study it. I've got to plumb the depths of it and then come to the realization, yes, this is true. I agree with this. This makes sense to me. Now that's going to be something that is Holy Spirit driven. Theologically, people refer to that as regeneration. You find it in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel talks about taking a heart of stone, <coughs> removing it and putting in a heart of flesh. Paul talks about it in the second chapter of Ephesians. He opens the chapter that way saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins until God opened your heart and gave you eyes to see. So this, this A of the cat is, is ascent. The Holy Spirit is starting to work, but none of it matters unless I get to the T of the cat, and that's trust, conviction, action, response. Satan knows more about Jesus than anybody in the room. Satan knows more about, Satan, Satan knows of Jesus. He even knows the validity of Jesus, but he does nothing but conspire to un, uh, unhinge, unearth, un, unravel, uh, to fight everything he can about Jesus, even thinking he had killed him when he took him to the cross, which God allowed to happen. And in fact, was the greatest victory in the history of the universe. But the point is, Satan doesn't, Satan isn't convicted. He isn't trusting in Jesus, obviously. You and I as Christians must do this. And this is where faith comes in. Active, real, solid faith will be a faith that acts, a faith that believes, not just gives assent to, yes, I, I'm pleased to come to church. I'm pleased to hear all the, the sermons. I'm pleased to go to Sunday school and hear about scripture. I agree with everything I'm seeing there, but I'm gonna leave here at noon and live my life any other way I want to. That is not biblical faith. Until you are committed and trusting and acting on faith. Uh, and that's what Jesus is, uh, is saying to these disciples when he's saying, forget about these things in the world. These things that will so seize your heart and mind that you won't be able to see anything but that and you will give yourself to them and when you do that you will be damaging any chance of having a truly biblical faith that will save you so verses 29 and 30 uh, don't worry therefore don't be anxious about worldly issues or objects or whatever god knows you need these things and god will provide these things uh, 29 and 30 uh, say, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Now, there is a, uh, it's not a caveat. We just need to understand fully what this means. This does not mean that I just let go and let God. That's a phrase that, that's been running around our culture for a long time. It's an unfortunate phrase. Uh, it perhaps has uh, a reasonably well-meaning intent behind it, uh, but it does not mean that I just uh, do nothing. Uh, I don't have to worry about food, clothing. It, Jesus says right here, God knows you need these things and he'll provide it. 
Uh, he is not saying that, that he does not expect me to work and to be obedient. That is what brings on all of these things. He's not saying it's up to me. He is saying that active faith, biblical faith and biblical Christian life is expected of the believer. And it's in conjunction with all of that. When you read verses like this, uh, God will provide, yes, he will. Uh, but uh, not only is he talking more specifically about uh, salvation, but also uh, these earthly means are going to be uh, ebbs and flows in our lives. He might use them. He might use those very things, uh, food to eat, shelter over our heads, as he did with Job and so many others in scripture to teach us to come back to him. The whole point of everything we are looking at in this passage is God is saying, look up to me. Don't look out to the sides like the Pharisees did, the scribes did. Don't seek the things of the world, the, the honors and the glories and all of those things. Rather seek the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self. Everything we looked at through verse 30 had to do with the kingdom of self. Uh, verses 31 through 34 is, is a transition point. That's why verse 31 begins with the word instead. That's, that's the movement of this passage. Verses 22, 34, transition at this verse 31. Instead, he says, seek his kingdom, that's the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you in the manner that God wishes them to be added to you. But Jesus goes even deeper in verses 32, three and four. He says this, I'll read those three verses. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That concluding verse, that 34th verse, is, is uh, in one sense a summary of everything that Jesus is presenting the parable of the rich fool for to, to fight the tendency to become uh, hypocritical in the sense of the Pharisees. Uh, verse 32, fear not, be anxious for nothing. Why? How can that possibly happen? Well, because God loves giving to his children the things of his kingdom. Verse 33, therefore, sell your possessions, give to the needy, lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures here on earth. Why? Because earthly treasures are those things that will fail, be stolen, be eaten by moths, that will not endure, that will rust, will corrode, and all the other bad things. Again, we've been talking about that throughout these, um, these last couple of weeks, especially with this parable of the rich fool. Instead of that, Jesus tells these disciples and tells you and me, live for heaven, not for this earth's fleeting idols. And there are many, many of them. Uh, J.I. Packer had an interesting, it's, it's interesting to me that he, that he has this quote relative uh, to this passage here. Packer says this, only when you know how to die well, can you know how to live well. 
Uh, what he's getting at, of course, is that when we focus only on this earth and all of the pleasures that it can possibly give to us or not, we tend to become people who are going to, uh, as, as our culture has, is so good at doing, deny death, uh, run from it, try to avoid it at all costs. That, in, in one sense, that's an absolutely perfectly understandable human uh, way of thinking, but... Uh, death is inevitable. And until the Christian knows how to die well, he or she is not likely to know how to live well. How a, a person who is aware of these things, we so many times under different contexts, we've talked about uh, people in, well, well, let's just take people in the West. Uh, for the last four or 500 years, death was very, very commonplace. Children Many, many famous people, theologians and, and pastors and so forth would have uh, 10 or more children and it was rare that more than one or two of them would live to adulthood. So you were constantly aware that that, that is something that is happening. Now today, thankfully, we've had medical advances and all of these sorts of things that can keep us living longer and longer, some would argue too long, um, but nonetheless, it makes it possible not to ever think about it. When we're not thinking about death, death is a pretty vertical thought. Uh, and when you can sever that concern, then it takes me only in the horizontal and I, I start glued uh, to the world again. And that's, that's not a good thing. So you conclude it with verse 34, this insight, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus has three treasure principles that he presented in this passage and he presents, we're going to see it again and again and again. This is not the last time we're going to get to this in Luke. Everyone lives for some kind of treasure. Your treasure will control your heart and your heart will control your behavior. Therefore, beware of where you find treasure, what you identify as treasure, how you define treasure and everything Jesus is saying to these men here is look to me, look up. Understand who you are as a believer. You've got the universe at your feet. And that's uh, where I want to uh, very briefly get to uh, Paul Tripp's uh, book. Uh, Paul, when uh, Bobby and I were, were raising our, our kids, we lived on the campus of Westminster Seminary and our house was directly across the street uh, from CCEF, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Uh, that's where Paul Tripp worked. That's where Ed Welch worked. That's where David Pallison worked. Uh, and those three men, uh, all of us had kids about the same age. Uh, we went, the kids went to the same school, uh, a Christian school that had, was begun by Westminster faculty 50 years earlier. Uh, and I, I just can't tell you what, a, what an honor and a pleasure Talk about being humble. I'd get around any one of those three and I just want to duct tape, just shut my mouth and listen. Uh, I am, I just, uh, just listen. And these, these guys, and they all three uh, wrote a lot of wonderful books. Ed Welch and, and Paul are still writing wonderful books. Uh, Paul wrote this one in 2010. And I'm only, uh, because of, of time and so forth, I'm only going to go to an interesting chapter that he entitles Jazz. 
Uh, I, I love music. I know nothing about music. Can't read a lick of it. Uh, I know that when the little round things are totally black, I keep moving. And when somebody hollows them out, I kind of go a little slow. And if you put a little bridge over the top, I, whoo, I, I don't know what to do. So I'm an illiterate when it comes to music, but uh, jazz, I never really, I never really got into jazz. Uh, Tripp talks about a fascinating time when his brother, Ted, uh, we sell Ted's book uh, here out in the, the lobby, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart, but uh, Ted invited his brother Paul to a concert. They were at the University of Toledo, and the concert was going to be Ramsey Lewis, the Ramsey Lewis Trio. Uh, Paul says he'd never heard jazz before, but he goes to the concert and it begins with Ramsey Lewis. He says, uh, Ramsey Lewis on the piano playing a song that was familiar to everyone in the audience. And he says, I must admit, I was a bit disappointed. Then all of a sudden, as the trio launched into its second pass through this piece, something amazing happened. The three members of the group all seemed to move in a different direction. Although they were still playing the same song, it didn't sound like the song anymore. But it wasn't dissonant, chaotic, or discordant. It worked. It sounded amazing, fresh, creative, but also harmonious. This is such a brilliant illustration of the passage we have just seen. This is how God works in our lives. He doesn't dictate. The scripture does not come to us and say, here is exactly how you handle every single thing that happens in your life. Uh, you are not little automatons. I don't create my people, my Christians, uh, to, to just see, look up uh, a text and have the answer to every situation in life. You're free. You're free to, uh, to take the music as you wish, as long as you remain harmonious with the song, with the intent and the flow and the rhythm of the song. I'll give you the timing, I'll give you the signature, but I'm not gonna give you the rest of it. That's how jazz, good jazz works. Now, this, what I've heard where people tell, I said, what was that? Said, That's jazz, said, oh, okay. Remind me to avoid that. But if you have good jazz, it is, it's exactly what Paul talks about. It's greater than the sum of the parts. It, it doesn't, you're thinking, well, this is great, but I don't understand why. These guys are all listening to the others in the group and they're taking their cue. So they're, they're harmonious, they're remaining in the flow of everything and they make it uh, more than it is. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Let me uh, show you how Paul weaves that in. You see, they hadn't, talking about the musicians, they had not rebelled against or abandoned the song. They were committed to that unified theme, something each of them was zealous to do, that kept what they were playing from degenerating into individualistic musical chaos. Even though it looked like it, they were not doing their own thing. What makes great jazz work is that it is gloriously unpredictable and creative, while at the same time submitting itself to a set of rules. Now think about scripture. Think about your life and my life being lived under, this, uh, under the dictates of this book, the principles of this book, the structure of this book, but not the word-for-word -word legalism of this book, so that we too are, can be creative, can be... Uh, 
individualistic as long as we submit to the set of rules. They were free to be creative, to wander, to make their own individual application of the structure to their particular instrument as long as they stayed within the musical parameters of the song. The intersection of form and freedom, this is the Christian life that Tripp is talking about. God is the ultimate musician. His music transforms your life. The notes of redemption rearrange your heart and restore your life. His songs of forgiveness, grace, reconciliation, truth, hope, sovereignty, and love give you back your humanity and restore your identity. But he has ordained not to play his music alone. He calls each of us to be players in his great redemptive band. He calls each of us to play and sing the notes of hope, faith, forgiveness, and love as well, to put down our music and to take up his, to quit composing and to start submitting, to play his music in harmony with him. And when we do this, the kingdom has come into our lives. Um, oh, I'd love to go through the rest of that chapter. <clears throat> but you see what, what Jesus is getting at. He's, he's not trying to hem the Christian in. Uh, to some set of legalistic rules and, and, and legalistic thinking. Uh, he's, he's saying that your greatest freedom is found when you go back to the song that God is placing in your heart through Jesus Christ. He doesn't hem you in. He frees you to be as creative as you wish. You still maintain the parables of, of this the song of redemption, as Tripp calls it. Uh, to stay true to it, to stay uh, embedded in it. But we all are given gifts by the Spirit and God is saying, use these things. Don't, don't give yourself to this petty little world that's disintegrating uh, in bodies that are going to die anyway. Go up higher. Uh, quest for more. That's where a trip is going in this book and that's where Jesus is going with the, these disciples. You don't have to uh, to take these, these petty little treasures on this earth that are going to be destroyed and rust and corrode and disappear. Go to something so much more magisterial. Uh, no orchestra on the planet has ever played what the Christian is given freedom to play. Play it in the constraints of Scripture and keep a vertical focus and you need never worry about this hypocrisy of these Pharisees. You need never worry about pettiness, individual uh, focus and getting lost in anxiety and worry. You don't need to worry. You're part of the band of heaven already. Keep playing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Uh, we we uh, see these passages of scripture so easy to run past them quickly, but there's profound truth in them. And I do pray, Father, that we would each uh, take these things seriously and look at our own lives and how we tend to interact with other people, interact within our own hearts, and how we so often and easily get off key because we start playing our own tune. We think it demands that we go and compose the tune when you have already composed a song of redemption and hope and glory. Father, help us get back into the right band, listen carefully, obey your instructions and open up our hearts to the creative song of grace and mercy and peace in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.